0: Revelation 1, 4 through 6. To the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from he who is and who was and who is to come, to the, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be kingdom to be a kingdom and priest to serve god and to serve his god and father to be and him be glory and power forever and ever amen well good morning everybody if we haven't met yet it's a little flat this morning kerwin Come on, I thought, you, I thought you pumped him up a little bit more. Good morning, everybody. <clears throat> we got a ball coach in here getting you guys ready to worship and hear the word of the Lord. So my name is Cole Fakes. If I haven't gotten to meet you yet, I'm the pastor and one of our elders here at Carlton Landing Community Church. And this morning, as Kerwin said, is Palm Sunday. It's the beginning of our celebration of Holy Week, the most important remembrance week of the year. And... If you've been to Holy Week stuff before, there's kind of this weird thing that you do on Holy Week where it's like you kind of pretend like you don't know what happens at the end. Like, oh, it's Palm Sunday. It's the triumphal entry. What's going to happen after this? Oh, it's it's Good Friday. He's dead. What could possibly happen after this? And then Easter. I think it's all to the goal of making Easter special. But this morning, we're not going to pretend like we don't know what happens. We're going to walk through Palm Sunday with the knowledge that what happened on Palm Sunday when Jesus rides into Jerusalem triumphantly, is a part one that we actually get to see the part two of in Scripture. It's the one moment in Jesus' earthly life, maybe with the exception of the wise men who come and bring kingly gifts to Jesus, it's the one moment in his life where he is treated like a king. But the end of the Bible, the reason we're in Revelation this morning, which you're like, that's kind of an odd one-off Palm Sunday text, just start the toughest book of the Bible, no problem, is because that's where we see Jesus as he is now. He is raised. He is ruling. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. We're not still waiting for that. Now, we're waiting to see it in all of its majesty, but that's the reality now. Jesus is not just somewhere out there wandering around a small Galilean village in the dust anymore. He is at the right hand of the Father reigning, and he will do that for all eternity. So on Palm Sunday, what we do is we see the earthly glimpse of it, and then what we're going to do today is we're going to say, and that's the reality now. Jesus is King. He is Lord. He is the firstborn from the dead. He is the faithful witness. That's the glimpse of Jesus we need now. And it makes you think in the opening chapter of Revelation about the Apostle John. John, the last of the Apostles alive, and we certainly don't have time this morning to debate when this was written, but let's just say this was written late in the Apostle John's life. He had seen his brothers, his apostles, Be martyred. He had seen the church go from the roaring first generation of Christians into the second generation of Christians. He'd seen the church founded by Jesus Christ and the apostles now move on to a group of people who had never seen Jesus in the flesh. I think how lonely it must have been because church tradition tells us that John was exiled to the island of Patmos for preaching the gospel, actually, for his witness, he says of Jesus Christ. But tradition tells us that before this, he had already endured persecutions. He had been boiled alive already at this point, actually. He must have been a very gruesome person to look at. And he's exiled out on this five-mile by ten-mile rock in the middle of the Aegean. And he must have been thinking about the time that he spent with Jesus. I wonder if he would have thought of Palm Sunday, because Before the crucifixion, that was the high point of his ministry with Jesus. See, what you would do on Palm Sunday is it was the beginning of the week of Passover. And so while Jerusalem during the year was not a huge town, at Passover almost a million people would come in in the surrounding areas to celebrate the feast. And so Jesus and his disciples did the same thing. We know that after he raises Lazarus from the dead, he is on his way into Jerusalem. And when you would come into Jerusalem, there's all these traditions you would do. Because for every Jewish family, going to Jerusalem for the Passover, that was like your vacation for the year. You You didn't get to go to the Mediterranean on the beach. You got to go to Jerusalem, to the temple, to celebrate the Passover feast. And when you would go... You would sing songs, and your family would have, would have had these same songs in their heads as you went to Jerusalem every year. In fact, we know exactly what they were singing because in the Psalms, in the Psalms that we have, Psalm 113 through 118 is the songbook for Passover. And it begins talking about praise to God for his deliverance. And it recounts the wonderful works that God has done, saving his people from Egypt and bringing them into the promised land. And in Psalm 118, it says, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest, save us. The king of David's line will come and he will save us forever. So imagine you're going to Jerusalem And you're singing this song with your family, and all of a sudden, something starts to happen. People are chanting Hosanna, and you realize that there's a procession coming, and there's a king mounted on a donkey, just like the prophet Zechariah said he would. And he's coming in, and you're saying, This is the moment. Like We get to be here when God is going to come back and he's going to be king. He's going to kick off the Romans. This is an uprising and we're going to get to be a part of it. Can you imagine for John and the disciples how exciting that would have been to think, Hosanna, Jesus is the king, the one we've been following. We're the disciples. Remember, James and John at one point asked Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, can we be at your right and left hand? Can we be like the most powerful guys in the kingdom?" And Jesus is like, it's not that kind of kingdom. Which they come to find out just a few short days later, just a week later, Jesus is put to death. He is put into a mock trial. He is betrayed. He is slandered. He is beaten. He is hung up on a Roman cross and killed. End of the kingdom dream. Until Sunday, when Jesus rises From the dead. And it says that the people who were there, they realized, the ones who believe, they realized this is now the eternal kingdom. But when John is on Patmos, I almost wonder if he's thinking, man, those were the good old days. (laughs) Those were the days. But what now? What now? And it says, John was praying on the Lord's day. And he was in the spirit on the Lord's day when he saw a vision of the risen Christ. I want you guys to know that the book of Revelation, while there's a million things we could talk about about the book of Revelation, the opening scene of Revelation is simple. The churches needed to catch a vision of Christ. It says, John, to the churches in Asia, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace and peace to you from the one who is and who was and is to come. That's the Father. That's just like when he says, tell them that my name is, I am who I am. We have trouble translating that because there's no way to put it into words. And this is the Greek way of putting that name into words. The one who is always present. He was present in the past. He is present in the future. He is present now. The one who was and is and is coming. The Father, the sevenfold spirits before the throne, the Holy Spirit, and from Jesus Christ. You need, John saying to these churches, and Jesus is saying to John, they need to see me as I am. Show them what I look like now. Tell them what I'm doing now. To the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him, to that one who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood and made us into a kingdom, priest to our God. Father, to him be glory and dominion and forever and ever. Amen. Sometimes you just need to see something to get yourself back on mission, to get yourself back in the place that you need to be. And I can remember being a high school kid, being a huge Dallas Cowboys fan, watching Jerry World be built on their live video cam. It was awesome. You could see the cranes moving around, the workers, everything. You could get on that thing like 24 hours a day and watch it being built. And I thought, someday I'm going to go there. I'm going to see Jerry World. I'm going to get the vision of Jerry World. Well, last year, we got to go. Laura got us tickets. We got to go to Jerry World. We got to see the Cowboys play the Eagles. It was the beginning of an eight-game winning streak. I don't think that's a coincidence that we were there for that. And we were so excited, and we told some of our friends, and it was a birthday present, and so our friends pitched in parking passes for the game. We got the tickets, they got the parking passes, it was awesome. And when you drive up to the stadium, you know, you've got your zone on your parking pass, and it's like, we just keep getting closer and closer and closer to the stadium. We're like, these parking passes are awesome. And sure enough, we're in like zone one. I mean, right up at the front of the stadium, it's like Jerry Jones and us, you know. (laughs) And you could tell which one was which. Um... So we get up, and, and the, the entrance is literally like right here. And we're like, I was like, Lord, this is amazing. This is, we're going to go in the doors that, that Jerry Jones goes in and all these people. This is going to be amazing. So we get, up to, we get up to the door, and he's like, we need to see your tickets. And so we hand him the tickets, and I'm like, oh, are these your only tickets? I was like, yeah, these are our only tickets. And he goes, yeah, yeah you need to go in. Okay, if you go all the way down over there and then the turn, that's where you go in. And we're like, okay, all right, great. So we're kind of doing the walk of shame out. We have to actually have to go out this barrier of security, like squeeze by the little thing to go out and go in the main gate. And it was like a little bit embarrassing how much they overshot our tickets with the parking passes. But what ended up being great is we had this vision of what it was going to be like when we walked in. But when you go around to the other side, you go in the main entrance. And if you've ever seen this, it's, they can open it up. It's this giant wonder of engineering. And if we hadn't had that experience, we wouldn't have seen what you want to see when you go. The open field, all the people, the big party. And we thought, this is it. It's not what we thought it was going to be, but this is it. This is better than we thought. This is more amazing than what we thought we were going to experience. And when we caught that vision of the stadium, and you actually experienced it for the first time, it's changed the way we've watched games ever since then. If you had that happen where you go somewhere, and then you see it on TV, and you're like, oh, I'll tell you what it's really like in there. I worry that the church today is too used to watching Jesus on TV. Like, I've heard about him, he's out there somewhere, he died on a cross, he rose from the dead, I'll see him someday, and Jesus' message to us in the opening chapter of Revelation is, I'm here! Come and see. Come through the grand entrance of the kingdom of heaven. It's open to you. I am with you. I am present. I am reigning over you. And for the church to really be on mission, you need to catch a vision of Jesus this morning as the King of Kings. Now there's a problem with this. Jesus is the King of Kings, but He didn't become the King of Kings like everybody else becomes a King of Kings. So John's description alerts us immediately that actually the entrance to the kingdom is a little bit more humble than you might have thought it was. Because the first thing he says about Jesus is, from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. The faithful witness. Witness of what? Witness of what? The Greek word for witness is the word martus or martyros, which is where we get the word martyr. And a martyr in the early church wasn't just somebody who had died. It was somebody who was giving a witness for what they had seen and what they had experienced. And so I've said this before when we've talked about witnesses. Witnesses in the New Testament mean they are a witness. When you look at them, you witness what it is they stand for. So Jesus is the witness. He is trying to show us something through his life. And his witness is a martyrdom. His witness is... You can be killed, you can be trampled on, you can be rejected, you can actually go through the lowest of the low place and be exalted to the king over all kings. That's the kind of king Jesus is. He's the kind of king whose witness is a martyrdom. His witness is being killed and coming back to life. And his witness is a reminder that there will be many more of these witnesses in the Christian life. See, the book of Revelation, for all the things that we see in it, and, that, and all that stuff is great to look into and decipher and all that, but at its base, the, the book of Revelation is an encouragement and a confidence to those future witnesses. See, at this point in history, the Christian church was about to go through three centuries of persecution off and on, in different places, and in, in different extreme levels, the church was about to be ransacked by the authorities. Christians were going to go through some very difficult times. And Jesus comes and gives a vision to John and says, send this to the churches because when they go through this, they need to see what kind of Savior they serve. It's, it's not just a king of kings, it's a martyred king of kings. One who actually ascended the throne because of his death. He is a witness to the many witnesses that would come in these first few centuries that God is reigning. Christ is on his throne. We conquer by dying. We conquer by laying our lives down. We actually conquer by witnessing to the fact that what Jesus said is true. Life can come from death. Forgiveness can come from sin. Glory can come from humility. The last really will be first. In God's kingdom, and God's economy, we lay our lives down, and by doing that, we live forever. That's the kind of kingdom Jesus is ushering in. In fact, by the third century, you have the famous line, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Are you getting the sense that this is not like an earthly kingdom? This is not like any other system of power and dominion. That the blood of the martyrs, which is the blood of the witnesses, what I believe is worth dying for, what I believe is not limited to what you can get in this life, the blood of that witness is the seed of the church. Here's the crazy thing. In those opening centuries of the church, they killed tens of thousands of Christians. And the church kept growing. Right? They were putting people to death in huge numbers. And only 300 years after Jesus had risen from the dead, the Roman Empire became Christian. How is that possible? That at every move you try and stamp something out, you make it illegal, you kill them, you banish them, you punish them, you censor them, and yet it grows and grows and grows and grows like a seed that's planted in the ground that splits the sidewalk above it and ruins the foundation of your house and grows into a giant tree. Jesus says that's the way the kingdom grows. So it's fitting that he doesn't just say that Jesus is a witness. Jesus is proof. He is a testament to us that God's word is true. One of the things that he's witnessing is he is the firstborn from the dead. He is the firstborn from the dead. The witness, the firstborn, the king of kings. This is an interesting sequence that John lays out for us. The firstborn from the dead. It it reminds me of the maxim, to be the best, you have to beat the best. Have you heard this before? To be the best, you got to beat the best. So this is kind of true in like the final four that we're seeing now, although you could get beaten by somebody and they get beaten by somebody like we totally could have beat them. But think more like boxing, where if you want to be the best You have to challenge the reigning champion. So if you want to be the heavyweight champ, you got to beat the heavyweight champ. You actually have to dethrone the person who is currently on the throne so that you can be on the throne. And this is what Jesus is doing by being the firstborn from the dead. What is the greatest reigning enemy? It's not a human power. It's not Rome. That's what he's trying to convince his followers. It's not Rome. Rome. Alexander the Great, 300 years before this, conquered the whole known world, died from a sickness that we would solve today in no time. And when he was dead, his kingdom was divvied up, and his reign was over. Just a few dozen years before this, Caesar had conquered the known world. He had actually been so powerful, he had done away with the Roman Republic and vested all power in himself. And yet, He was stabbed on the Ides of March, his rule ended, there was turmoil, and his reign was over. It was a bounded kingdom, bounded in this life. And Jesus is trying to convince his disciples, earthly kingship is so junior varsity. That's not even like the competition that we're in. Every earthly king is going to die. Every earthly kingdom is going to go under. Every kingdom at some point is going to crumble and fall. The heavyweight champ of the world is death. Death at this point, before Jesus rose from the dead, undefeated. Undefeated. Except for two guys in the Old Testament. A little odd story there. But death at this point is the overwhelming favorite in the world. The elephant in the room when Jesus launches his public ministry is what's going to separate him from all the other teachers who have preached some kind of message about their kingdom and then died? In fact, what's what's going to be any different between Jesus and everything else? And on Palm Sunday, Jesus is actually making a frontal assault on death. But his followers mistake it for Rome. And I wonder how many times we too have thought the same thing, that the highest good I can imagine for Jesus is to make my life easy, to remove an obstacle, to solve a problem, when Jesus is like, hey, the big picture is I have already destroyed the greatest enemy. Everything else is being undone from the inside out. Like I said, the the Romans were particularly good at killing Christians. They would come up with new ways to kill Christians. They would use them as lamps in their gardens. They would crucify them. They would throw them out in wild beasts, and the the church kept growing. But since then, there actually have been more martyrs in this last century than there were in all the centuries combined. We just don't know about it. In fact, there's a guy, there's two guys, one guy, Jerry Pattingale, who just wrote a new Fox's Book of Martyrs. So John Fox wrote a chronicle of Christian martyrs in the 16th century. And he started at the early church and told the stories of the apostles all the way up to the Reformation. And what these guys have done is they said, yeah, but it's gotten worse since then. In fact, in remote areas of the world that we, it's not something you mention in polite company, there are tens of thousands of Christians that are being killed every year now. One of these pastors in the 1970s was, was in Romania and his name is Pastor Joseph, and when he was in Romania, the country was under communist rule, and it was illegal to preach the gospel, to have church. It was illegal for him to be a pastor, and so Joseph, Pastor Joseph, asked the Lord if he wanted him to continue preaching. Lord, it's illegal. It's not going to be good for my family. I'm going to have a hard time getting health insurance, but could I continue to preach? And the Lord says, yes, you should continue to preach. So he does and he has a house church and he continues preaching and he gets arrested and he's tortured and he's threatened and at one point he's being interrogated and this officer saying, you know what, we could just end things right now, nobody would ever know. Nobody would miss you, nobody would ask us about it, we have all power over you. And he said to them, do you understand that when you kill me, you send me to glory you can't threaten me with glory. The more suffering, the more troubles, the greater the glory. So why say stop this trouble? Because the more suffering, the more glory up there. So in it, they let him go. And then they arrest him again, and they're interrogating him again. And he says, you guys don't understand. Your supreme weapon is killing. My supreme weapon is dying. Here's how this works. My sermons are on tape all over the country. When you shoot me or kill me whichever way you choose, you will sprinkle my sermons with blood. Everyone who has a tape of one of my sermons will pick it up and say, I had better listen to this again. This man died for what he preached. Sir, my sermons will speak 10 times louder after you kill me, because you kill me. I will conquer this country for God because you kill me go ahead and do it. So they let him go. (laughs) I wonder if many of us in that situation would have that same outlook. The greatest weapon that could be used against us from the world's perspective is to kill us. And that would be tragic, but it would also lead to glory. See, Jesus' is witness, they, they actually did kill him in the end. Sometimes we're, in the, we're just past the Sermon on the Mount, and you're like, I love this Jesus. His teaching is amazing. Love your enemies, give to the poor, strive after justice. You're like, this guy could have gotten elected mayor of Jerusalem. But then you realize at the end they kill him, like unfairly. I just want us to go back and think about how mad we would have been they weren't following the rules of justice. They weren't saying things that were true about him. They ginned up this whole trial so that they could put him to death, and they did it. And Jesus is saying, That's, God has prophesied this. You didn't kill me. I lay my life down, and I have the power and the authority to take my life back up. Death is not the end for us. Death is just the beginning. Jesus is the firstborn of a giant family of people who are going to rise from the dead, and their life then, our life then, is going to make this life pale in comparison. But some of us are still operating like the worst thing that could happen to us is what happens here. It's not. Jesus says, don't fear the ones that can only harm the body. That's like a blip on the radar in eternity. Think about the one who, after you die, can throw your soul into hell. Think about the one who can give eternal life. This passage is so strongly tied to Colossians chapter 1, and in that passage, Paul, what he's doing is he's playing on Genesis 1.1. The Greek of Genesis 1.1 in the Septuagint says, N-R-K, which means in the beginning, but it also means over all. R-K can mean the beginning of a time, but it can also mean the head or the authority of something. And Paul is playing with that phrase a little bit, thinking about how Jesus is not just in the beginning with God, like John chapter 1, he is over all things with God. And he breaks out into this praise, he says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning. He is the firstborn from the dead. That, in everything, he might be preeminent. Get that? He's the heavyweight champ now. He's dethroned the worst thing that could happen to us. He is the firstborn of the dead. Therefore, he is preeminent in all things. The message to the church then, the message to the church now is, you may be a witness of suffering, but Jesus is preeminent. He has gone before you. The worst that could happen to you has happened to him, and look where he is now, seated at the right hand of the Father, firstborn from the dead, preeminent over all things. And Because of that, he is the ruler of the kings of the earth. In this opening vision in Revelation, it is loaded with one of the most common and sought-after prophecies in the Old Testament. John goes on in verse 7 to tell us, Behold, he is coming on the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. And he says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I turned, in verse 12, to see a voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. Okay, every, every Jewish ear would have just perked up. Wait, what did you say? One like a what? One like a son of man. Because in Daniel chapter 7, the great future prophecy of the Old Testament, Daniel has a vision of four kingdoms. And among the kingdoms, he says, there are four strong kings. But then, in the midst of these kings, in the midst of this little horn that plucks up all the other kings, which is pretty easy to figure out, that's Rome. And in the midst of Rome, it says, As I looked, the thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. And his clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure Wool. His throne was fiery flames, and its wheels were burning fire, and a stream of fire issued and came out before him, and tens of thousands of thousands served him and stood before him. And the court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. And he says, And then I saw, behold, coming on the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will never pass away. And his kingdom is one that shall never be destroyed. See, when they said he's coming on the clouds of heaven and he is like one, like a son of man, they're saying this has happened. This has happened. He's going to be coming on the clouds again at the second coming, but his ascension is the moment that he took the throne of heaven. And his everlasting kingdom has begun. He is reigning now through the church. And in the future, he will reign over all the kingdoms of the earth, and we will see it, but now he is reigning through the church. His kingdom will never pass away. It will never be destroyed. And he opens the vision of Revelation to be like, hey, just a reminder, guys, this has already started. The Son of Man has taken his seat on the throne. The beasts that you see now are trifles compared to him. Jesus actually applies this prophecy to himself. This is how he gets himself killed. He's before the Sanhedrin, and they are making false accusations against him until the high priest says, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? Are you the Son of God? Are you the Messiah? And Jesus in Mark chapter 14 says... I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of God coming on the clouds. Do you remember what they did after that? They didn't say, well, that's kind of interesting. We'll see how that plays out. They tore their clothes, and they said, woe to you, that is blasphemy. Because to claim to be the Son of Man who has come on the clouds, who is seated at the right hand of the Father, means the age of the Messiah has come. God has come back to Jerusalem. He is going to reign, and every other existing order is on a time clock of destruction. It's all the king of kings. So John is seeing this that morning on Patmos, and he's going to be like, okay, if this is the vision of the king, what is the king doing? What is the king doing now? And John breaks out into song. There's more songs in the book of Revelation than there are anywhere else in the New Testament. Because when you encounter this vision of Jesus, you have to worship. You have to worship. And in fact, John had been waiting his whole life. His other disciples, they had gone on to see this vision constantly with Christ. But John hadn't. Right, This is what Jesus had prophesied about John when he and Peter are walking with Jesus and, and Jesus says to Peter, you're going to be taken away where you don't want to go. You're going to be martyred. And Peter says, well, what about John? And John, he says to John, so what? If, if he stays until I come back, what does that do you? You just follow me. In fact, that's right by one of my favorite lines in the Gospels where they go to the tomb the morning that Jesus has been raised. And you only get this detail in John, in John's Gospel, where it says, and Peter and John were running to the tomb. And John, writing after all the other disciples were dead, is like, and John beat Peter to the tomb, actually. And he was the first one to get to look in, but the last one to get to see his Savior face to face. So, John, what is your Savior doing now? He's building his church. He's building his church his priority is that his kingdom will never end and if that is the king of kings the firstborn of the dead the faithful witnesses priority how could it ever fail he is building his church in fact we don't have time to go into this but the opening vision of the lampstands tells us that Jesus is walking in the middle of his church he, he is in the midst, he is trimming the wicks, he's refilling with oil, he is pruning and shaving and caring for the church so that it will accomplish its goal in the world, to be a faithful witness to Christ. That we too would say, like Pastor Joseph, those people believed what they preached, they lived it, they, they knew that their lives here were just a prelude for what God is doing there. They knew that what we do here can be forgiven and redeemed and turn around and set on a mission. The one who loves us enough to give himself for us has also made us a kingdom, priests to our God. So on this Palm Sunday, I want to conclude with one of the most famous passages in the Bible. And I I want you to look at it through this lens that we've been talking about. And And I want to bring up the fact that Probably like you this week, I've been thinking a lot about the shooting in Nashville. And just trying to square this message of Palm Sunday with that. You're like, how could that happen if Jesus is on the throne? How could that happen? I mean, if you've got oversight over all things, how could you let that happen? I want to take you to Romans 8. I want to show you this dynamic of the kingdom of heaven. He, Jesus has been there. God has been there. We don't serve a God like any other religion in the world who can say, oh my gosh, we've got it worse than God. God has been there. He is compassionate. He is kind. He is empathetic. We may not be able to know why, but we know the what. We know that Jesus is a sympathetic high priest who is with his people, who is comforting, who is healing, who is justifying, who is saving, who is judging, and who, in the end, some way, somehow, will make everything right. Here's the way Paul put this, and this is what I think the message of Palm Sunday is for us. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who could possibly be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who could condemn us? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God currently interceding for us, praying for us. Who could ever separate us from the love of God? Because of Jesus' death, who could separate us now from the love of God? Should tribulation, we've seen that, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword? And here's where the wonder of what Christ came to do separates us from any other system of belief. The fact that Paul thinks to quote this verse in this triumphant passage tells you everything you need to know about the witness of Jesus. It is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. But even in that, even at the very worst that you could imagine, if you give it enough time, he says, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The triumphing, dying King. Nothing can separate you from Him. Nothing could ever separate you from His love. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning that as we enter Holy Week, we're reminded that it wasn't all a fairy tale for you, for your son, after Palm Sunday. Lord, it wasn't like any other coronation that's ever happened in human history where on the way to his throne, he dies. And when he rises, he is given authority over everything in the universe. Father, we know that spiritually, our life with you requires Death. Death to sin. Death to the old self. Repentance. Turning from the things that we were pursuing and turning towards you. Father, we know that since we have died with Christ, we will be raised with Him. Lord, since we have suffered with Him, we will reign with Him. Father, since our lives here are a witness. We will be with you forever. Father, give us, too, a glimpse this morning of our Savior. Father, as we come to your table now, show us that you prepare a table for us in the presence of our enemies, that the greatest enemy is death, and that you are the Father and the source of life. So, Lord, we worship you now. We thank you. We prepare our hearts this week to deal with the difficulties of life here as we realize that we are citizens of a kingdom that is coming that will never end. So, Father, we lift up your name this morning. The great name of Jesus. Amen.